Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, I'm Keegan. And I'm Madigan. And you're listening to Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist. This is a podcast where we explore the world through our own personal feminist perspectives. Yes, it is. And this week we are talking about something very near and dear to both of our hearts. Very near and dear to our hearts. Very much from our perspective. Ugh. I mean, and I also feel like now more than ever, now more than ever, I feel like those commercials in the beginning of COVID. We need to come together. But seriously, now more than ever, I feel like this is a very relatable topic. Yeah. And it's also, I want to say. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am thrilled to invite you to Rachel Uncensored, my podcast where I get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. From personal stories to hot-button issues, we cover it all. New episodes drop every Wednesday. So make sure you tune in on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored. Very frustrating because as someone who's been, who's been diagnosed with some sort of anxiety for 20 years... And I feel like I know quite a bit about myself, my experience with anxiety, my friends with anxiety, Mm -hmm. the lack of information there is about anxiety out there. While there is a lot, I was shocked that so many articles that I was clicking on, particularly pertaining to women and anxiety, very short, and they all essentially pertain the same information. Yeah. And that was very upsetting. Like around the same statistics, around the same general um, information and not a lot of detail. And I think it's because, you know, we're going to talk about the history of anxiety and its diagnosis and things like that and its validity to the medical mm-hmm. world. And I think that that was just kind of shown to me in a much more obvious way when trying to research it. Because you think there are so many people in the world, particularly women, we are twice as likely to experience an anxiety disorder than men are. You'd think that there would be this wealth of information and answers for us out there to be able to give you so many answers. And while there is a lot of information that we have, Compared to a lot of other disorders, particularly depression, there's a lot less of a history and an explanation because we're still learning so much about the long term effects of anxiety and things like that because we're really starting from like 1980. Right. And I think it's also because there are so many contributing factors to anxiety that could be causing your anxiety. Like there's no one size fits all kind of reason why people suffer from anxiety 
an anxiety disorder or why it's a particular type of anxiety disorder. I think that's something else where it's like you can't pigeonhole everything into generalized anxiety. There's PTSD, there's OCD, there's all of these different Mm -hmm. things where I feel like because it could be such a broad spectrum, maybe it was harder to diagnose, maybe it was harder to understand. But from my perspective, it seems like philosophers and people from, you know, ancient Greek times and way back then had a much better understanding about how our mental health and our physical health were kind of one in the same and just as important medical issues where I feel like we've lost that for centuries and are just starting to come back to trying to understand Mm -hmm. what those like philosophers were trying to tell us hundreds of years ago. Yeah, I mean, and specifically for anything that disproportionately affects women, I feel like those things end up becoming dismissed. Because I think for a long time and even up through now, anything that affects women more, people just categorize as she's probably over-exaggerating or it's probably not as bad. Well, we did a whole episode on hysteria Mm -hmm. where it was almost just like women were put under this like whole umbrella term for just being unable to cope with something in their lives or had some sort of mental illness or something going on instead of really taking the time to understand what this woman's problem was and how they could help this woman. They just kind of put her under this blanket of hysteria, called her crazy and called it a day. Right. Yep, exactly. And that's what we're dealing with. (laughs) Yeah, and that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about, you know, why are women twice as likely to be diagnosed with an anxiety disorder than men? And, you know, there's a lot of reasons. There's a lot of contributing factors yeah. that could be at play here. Some of them are societal. Some of them are environmental. Some of them are biological. And genetic. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about anxiety. So a certain amount of anxiety is normal. Like, yeah. I think that that's the thing. You Everyone, should worry about certain things. Like yeah. That's a natural response to have fear or worry or anxiety. Yeah, everyone experiences anxiety to some degree, right? Everybody does. You know, if you have to give a big presentation at work, you might feel a certain amount of anxiety uh, or fear or worry. That's completely normal. The what, what crosses it over into an anxiety disorder is when you're having long-term anxiety that ends up negatively affecting your quality of life. Yes. And I know that both of us experienced this. Uh, when I started going to therapy regularly, they were like, yes, you have generalized anxiety disorder. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and I know that I've experienced panic attacks. You've experienced panic attacks or panic episodes even that last for longer you know, because there's panic right. attacks and then there's um... there's panic disorders. And I, I mm-hmm. called my mom this morning because there's a lot, you know, like I said, I've I've been diagnosed with with some sort of anxiety disorder since I was 10 years old. I'm almost 30. So it's 20 years of me being on medication, taking different forms right. of therapy, being diagnosed with a numerous amount of different things. I wished so badly prepping for this episode that I had all my medical files in front of me. I'm so curious as to like, I don't remember what I've been diagnosed as at certain times. I know when I was 10, I asked my mom and she said that it was specifically separation anxiety that I was Mm -hmm. diagnosed with as a kid. And then when I started self-harming, when I was like 15, 16, it was depression, but they were still treating me with the same medication. I never really went back to therapy. And then I was diagnosed with anorexia when I was 19. And then I went to a second treatment center and they put me on a different medication when I was 20. 
So yeah. I'm all fucked up in the head. I'm like where I lie in so many of these things. I've been diagnosed with PTSD. Like there's all of these different things. Well, so I, think, I don't always know where I lie, but I think that's yeah. almost kind of more common. Yes, that's what because, I was going to say. Yeah. And also because I don't think that there was an understanding and I don't mean to kind of like make this about me, but I don't think there was an understanding when I was a kid of what to do with someone so young and having such severe panic attacks. Like I would have, I still have panic attacks like this where it's almost like a tantrum and it's super embarrassing, but like I just become uncontrollable. I would, when I was little, I'd hit my head on the floor. It was bad and I wasn't able to go to school. And so they were like, we're going to put this kid on medication and they put me on something called Paxil. And now a couple of years ago, they put out this article that was like, Paxil is unsafe for children. Do not give them Paxil. Sure enough, a couple of years of me taking it, I told my friend in middle school that I wanted to kill myself. My parents were called. It was a whole thing. They had to adjust my medication. And it was kind of like, well, what do you do with this person who's still forming and developing? How do we help her feel better to live normally in life, but also not make her worse mm-hmm. by giving her this medication. And I think it was such a weird thing that like doctors, even then, and this would have been like 2000, let's say 2002 or three, even then didn't really know what to do with me. Right. I mean, I think and that's, that's a kid. It's, there's a difference in between kids and like, we're talking about grown women for the most part. So it is kind of a different discussion, but I think certainly that, it is yeah. kind of with me where I just don't really think they knew what to do with me. So my anxiety was never really like properly treated. Well, as I a kid. think they still don't know entirely what to do. And I think also medications react so differently depending on your biology. I mean, you can watch a pharmaceutical commercial for a drug that's meant to treat depression. Right. And they'll say that one of the side effects might it's be suicidal, suicidal thoughts. thoughts or tendencies. And, and that's like, one of the major well, things with kids. And the, the reason they put me, I was on Paxil when I was a kid because my mom took that and that was the only reason they put me on that and I wish that I don't know if there was just a lack of information about Paxil's effects on children but I'm I, sure that that's probably the case because yeah. they were like oh the mom takes it we're just gonna put her on this mm-hmm. even though everywhere I read today was like do not give your kid Paxil bad 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 <laughs> right I'm certain that that was the case I'm certain that there just wasn't enough information at the time that they yeah, put you on it certainly. to know that and it did help me a lot like mm-hmm. and that's the thing that was kind of hard because like although it gave me a lot of like very like depressed moods and thoughts like it really sunk me into a low place at times it also really helped my panic attacks so it was kind of a double-edged sword right? there because mm-hmm. I was finally able to go to to sleepovers which I never could do I was able to like be away at skating all day from my mom without her having to stay with me and it mm-hmm. was a huge shift in my life yeah but well, it just think, came with this other struggle I think a lot of people experience that because like you said, oftentimes people will have multiple things going on mentally, whether that be several different forms of anxiety disorders at the same time, or like me, you have generalized anxiety and depression. Right. Right. And so oftentimes those medications, I've never been put on medication, uh, probably should have been, um, should be probably on, on I'm a medication. big proponent for therapy and medication working together, but everyone is their own person. Yeah, you know, I am so weird about like even like going to the doctor at all. So like I'm just very weird about like medication, even if I know rationally that I should probably be taking medication. Definitely there was a period in my life where I should have been taking medication for my depression when it was really, really bad. Right. Uh, now I would say that my anxiety is worse than my depression, um, which is 
very normal, as we'll talk about later on, or not and necessarily normal. And I think it depends but, on like what is happening in your life as well. Yeah. For what's showing certain symptoms, right. And when of certain course. things trigger you and things like yeah. that, because there are definitely times in my life where my depression is more prominent or my anxiety. And there's a lot of times where those two are button heads. Right. And that's yes. really hard yeah. too. But as I'll talk about a little bit later, as women get older, so into your thirties actually is when you start to see your anxiety peak. A lot of women um, are diagnosed with anxiety disorders in their early 30s. So going into your 30s, oftentimes for women, your anxiety can get worse. Uh, Fun. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry, you're about to turn 30. (laughs) You're Uh, already two years in. But I do feel like that was true for me. Like I do feel like my anxiety started to get worse. And who knows? Again, we just don't know if that was biological or if that is environmental I have well, so there much is, more going on now in my life yeah I've put a lot more pressure on myself so maybe that is what's causing my anxiety right you know you you don't really know for you sure don't know. Uh, but when it comes to medication again if you have depression and anxiety or several different forms of anxiety disorder those drugs sometimes like the drugs you're taking for your anxiety can make your depression worse yeah or you know, vice versa. And trying to figure out that cocktail of the perfect mix is living hell. Um, But then there's also, because you were mentioning that when you turn 30, a lot of times that's when we start to notice a spike in anxiety diagnoses. I was also talking to my mom about something that I was doing reading about, and that was just talking about any hormonal changes, especially for women and how that affects our bodies Mm -hmm. and our minds. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of times I've read that it is kind of through those major transitional periods of our hormones. So like when we go through puberty, when we're kind of getting into our like full adult ages. And then they were also talking about how a lot of women who have maybe never struggled with anxiety before when they go through menopause will start to experience anxiety. And I'll talk about that a little bit later because I actually found that to be really fascinating. Yes. Um, But I want to like, let's move. Let's stick a pin in that. Let's stick a pin in that. We will definitely get back to that because I find that so interesting yes uh but I want to talk a little bit about the definitions of anxiety disorders so they are defined by excessive fear restlessness and muscle tension they are debilitating disabling and can increase the risk for depression and suicide anxiety is also a very physiological thing so I think a lot of times especially again with things that disproportionately affect women, we have this tendency to think that it's all in your head. Yeah. And that's the same thing with depression. Oftentimes people will be like, just get over it. Right. Just be happy. Why can't you just... Why are you making yourself miserable by repeating these things? And you're like, there's so many things mm-hmm. where it's like, but you don't understand. <laughs> yeah, you don't understand. And it is very physiological. So in addition to the symptoms that I already mentioned, it can also lead to fatigue, headaches, difficulty swallowing, trembling, twitching, sweating, nausea, breathlessness, and difficulty sleeping. A among other symptoms. Yeah. You know, so it can have long-term physical effects. Well, and one of the things that I've always talked about with my friends that experience really debilitating panic attacks as well, and I know we've discussed this, is that come down after it's oh, done. Oh, yeah. I ha- I was talking to Keegan before this. I had... I, I've been calling it a 48 hour panic attack. I feel like I, it was just up and down. My heart rate was just wild for like yeah. literally two days. And it's because it just, it takes my body so long to come down and realize that it's safe. Yeah. That even when I know that the, 
the trigger, the harm, whatever, like everything is going to be okay. I'll still feel it in my body. I get very nauseous. And when I throw up, I have like a muscle in my back that spasms. I get really bad back spasms. Mm -hmm. I need to take a nap. I'm wiped out like I ran a marathon. And I think that that's something else where it's like, it's not like you're pan- like really stressed out and then you're like, oh, okay, that's over. Now I can like move on with my day. Like it can have such, which sometimes it can, I can be panicked and then move on. But when I'm experiencing like a, a really big true panic attack, it does do more than just mentally affect me. It can physically affect me so mm-hmm. much. And I think that people can sometimes not understand how something mental can affect your physical health so obviously. Yeah, yeah. well, the first time I had a panic attack, I called out of work the next day Yeah. because I was so physically wiped out from from that panic attack. Because what happens is with panic attacks specifically is your body is in a state of fight or flight, Yeah. right? So you are having a very real fear response to something that is not actually present. So it's the same kind of feeling you would have if you were in a room with a tiger, right? Like, Or if I was standing no on tiger. top of a building on a ledge. Yeah, you yeah. know what I mean? It's that same feeling of, you know, fight, flight or freeze. And for a lot of people, it also lasts for an extended amount of time. And that's also really hard to get over yeah. to shake that feeling off. Yeah. And, you know, another thing that I know that I experience that is very common uh, when talking about anxiety disorders is knowing rationally that the response that you are having is disproportionate to the situation. It's almost like for me, an out of body experience being like, bitch, why are you acting like this? Right. You're and you, okay. you can't control it. Yeah. Like, you know, rationally that like you're safe, like, right. Physically, you're safe. You know that you might even know that like e- the situation does not warrant this response at right. all. Like, and you should, calm down and, and you're you can acting tell a yourself, fool right now and then that right. makes you feel worse <laughs> right and you can tell yourself to calm down but oftentimes that will just make you like it'll like, exacerbate the situation down exactly even more well and you i know. think there's also so much judgment behind it too like that's all i'm hearing when we talk about things like that like we judge ourselves for our anxieties and our responses mm-hmm. to things because we're like how silly is this why am i responding to you know, someone who slightly looks like someone who treated me bad. You know what I mean? It's like these uh-huh. things that seem like they have no rhyme or reason to affect you. It can make you feel so silly and so yeah. embarrassed. Yes. And you don't want to have to even acknowledge that to yourself, let alone somebody else that like, hey, I'm freaking out over nothing over here. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah, absolutely. So let's take a little bit of a break. And when we come back, let's talk a little bit about some of the most common forms of anxiety disorders. Let's do it. Okay, we're back. So I wanted to talk a little bit about some of the most common forms of anxiety disorders. So there's generalized anxiety disorder, and that is what I have. And it is persistent, excessive, or unrealistic worrying that interferes with functioning. It can have symptoms similar to panic disorder or obsessive compulsive disorder. And some of the common symptoms include constant worry, restlessness, and trouble with concentration, which is something that I feel a lot. And then that just makes it worse for me. Right. right? So when I was a kid, my first panic attack, like I said, when I was 10, I was in fifth grade. And immediately, my mom said everything changed. Like I went from not having a problem going over to friends houses and going to school and like being gone all day to 
literally being unable to be in school. And then if I was in school, I was not paying attention. I was trying to get my way home. My mom worked at my school. So I would try to like beg her to take me home with her after lunch every day and things like that. I missed out so much on my education. Mm -hmm. I missed out on friend time. Yeah. And it truly like, I mean, that's why I always say I suck at math. Like I missed those like vital learning years of so many things because I physically was so unable to be in school or to concentrate and they didn't know what to do with me. The lack of focus, lack of concentration, that one really upsets me because my anxiety will peak. Like yesterday, I was super- When you feel you're not being productive or something? Well- or when I'm when I know I have a lot to do, right? Like and I I know I need to be focused, right? Like I'm like I need to be focused to get done the things I need to get done. Yeah. And I will usually still get them done, but it's 20 times harder because my anxiety is up so high that I that's in I the almost, forefront. I freeze, right? Yeah. Like I'm just like I I can't do anything. There's no. like so much to do that I can't do anything and yeah. then I completely freeze. Yeah. Uh and then that makes it worse exactly, because now because you're then like you're not being productive. Yeah, and now you're I'm getting behind. Like now I'm getting even further behind. I'm running out of time. Yeah. Like you know, you just start to freak out. So then there is also panic disorder, and this is a disorder in which debilitating anxiety and fear arise frequently and without reasonable cause, usually accompanied by panic attacks, which, as we have said before, are sudden episodes of intense fear and anxiety. Then there is social anxiety disorder, and this is actually the most commonly diagnosed form of anxiety in women, and it is a disorder in which social interactions cause irrational anxiety. For people with social anxiety disorder, everyday social interactions cause irrational anxiety, fear, self-consciousness, and embarrassment. So symptoms for this may include excess fear of situations in which one may be judged, worry about embarrassment or humiliation, or concern about offending someone. Right. And I don't think of myself as someone with social anxiety. But I but think we can all relate to this yes. in some sense, which I think is good because it helps us relate to people that struggle with it on right. a more yes. extreme level. I would consider myself to be sometimes socially anxious. Like right after this, I'm going to a, a networking event and yes. I am anxious about that because I, I don't, don't like, like being surrounded by people that don't know me and trying to be in a situation where you're like, am I going to say the wrong thing? Are they going to like me? Like that kind of thing. But I don't think I have social anxiety. It's not so debilitating that you're not going to go. Right. You know what I mean? Like where it's that different kind of thing where... Yeah, because I've seen this one on the internet. I feel like kind of... There are certain like things that become popular on the internet like for a while it was OCD like I'm so OCD everybody says that yeah and that's the thing I mean I think that's just problematic to begin with because especially because so many people do actually struggle with it you don't need to say you know what I mean like just get yourself diagnosed if you think you have it you don't need to brag about it you don't need to say those things about yourself to make other people feel bad if you're a perfectionist and like things in a certain way does not make you OCD right (laughs) and you can just say that like I you know I just I'm particular about the way that I like things I love it when people refer to themselves as being anal retentive or anal I just think it's really funny neurotic yeah (laughs) (laughs) I mean I just like I like saying anal it's just funny to me yeah all right Anyways, (laughs) Anyways, <laughs> that gave me a little boost of serotonin that I needed. What? So we had social anxiety. Did you talk about OCD yet? I have not. No. Okay. Was that next on your list? No, I only did those three because those okay. are the three major ones that people are most often okay, diagnosed with as far as like general anxiety disorders. Okay. You okay. can get into more specific disorders like 
obsessive compulsive disorder. Yeah, PTSD, things like that. So some of the primary treatments for anxiety disorders are cognitive and behavioral therapy. CBT. Mm -hmm. Exposure therapy, which I feel like... I always that'd be a hard no for me, man. (laughs) I always think of like, oh, you're scared of spiders. Like, I'm gonna put a tarantula on your chest or something like that. And I'm like, I think it is like a slower process than that. They just don't like throw you into the lion's dens. I can see, especially with like specific phobias of like spiders and things like that. I can see where like confronting your fear is gonna help you conquer them. But like when I hear that, it'd be like, hey, stand in a room with your rapist and see how you feel about yeah. it. Like, ah! yeah. I mean, I think when I think of exposure therapy, and I think that this does work, I always think about I was watching some show on TLC during obviously a formative time in my youth that because I remember it, um, where it was dealing with people who had agoraphobia and they used exposure therapy with them very successfully by, you know, having them walk outside yep. and come back in. Well, having that's them go what, a little further, having them get in the car and, you know, drive for a mile and turn around and come back home. Exactly. You know? So for those of you who listened for a while, my mom had agoraphobia when she was in her early 20s. And that was another thing that I wanted to talk to her about because she was um, being treated before any of this was even a real medical diagnosis. So she was being treated for depression, even though she was saying, I'm not depressed. I don't have depression. I can't leave my house. She's like, that's not my problem. Yeah, I think a long long time ago, people were just like, hmm, you can't get out. Like they equate it as well, the same as like, either, oh, you can't get out of bed. So you must be like yeah, and you tragically were depressed or something. Manic or depressed yeah. to like the DSM at this mm-hmm. time. It, there wasn't any like leeway for anxiety disorders and all of these things. So when my mom was explaining how she was feeling like she couldn't leave the house to them, it seemed like more of a depressive thing. And it got, you know, she remembers her first panic attack. She said as being, um, you know, she got married in 72. She said it was a few months after she got married. She was on her lunch break working at Dayton's, the department store, and suddenly it just came on. And then it it just happened all the time after that. She said it took a few months for her to finally talk about it to a doctor. The doctor referred her to a hospital. She stayed in like a mental hospital for three weeks. They gave her a drug called, I think it was Avento. Yeah, it was Avento, which is uh, treated for like mood disorders and stuff. So it really didn't do much to help my mom. And it wasn't until 10 years later that she read an article in um, Good Housekeeping. Is mm-hmm. that what it is? I feel like I'm mixing up names. Of no, Good magazines. Housekeeping is a, a, a magazine. I felt like it was like home and housekeeping. I don't know. There's probably also one called that. It's yeah. like there's just so there's many so of many. those out yeah. there, right? But she was like, it was 10 years later. So it's got to be like in the early 80s. And she was reading this article of this doctor talking about agoraphobia. And it was this light bulb moment for her. Like, oh my God, the, right. that was me. Yeah, she calls. I did not know this story until this morning. She called her therapist from 10 years before who did not remember her. And my mom told her about this article and was like, is this me? Do I have this? And the therapist essentially was like, do you think you have it? And she was like, yeah, this sounds like me. And she's like, well, then you have it, which I was like, "Okay, thanks, therapist. You're doing your job. Way to do the bare minimum. But that's how little they knew about it. Yeah. I mean, they didn't even know my mom had an anxiety disorder in the 70s, let alone have a name for what she was going through. And that was the first time that she felt validated right, right. in her experience. I think but that's, that's what why... she had to do to herself is just she's like, OK, I got to I'm going to w- walk to the stop sign. 
Yeah. I'm going to go to the front of the store, but I'm not going to go in today. Tomorrow, maybe I'll go in and grab one thing. Maybe the next day I'll go in and grab two. And she said that she had to teach herself because there was no treatment out there at the time to help her get through it. And she's like, I have to live my life. I have to find a way to make it through. Yes. And that is a form of exposure therapy. Yeah. So saying like, I'm going to, you know, walk outside if you have agoraphobia. And like I was watching that TLC show and it was like, you could tell that this stuff was really affecting them. Like they were trying to drive. There was one who had a fear of driving. Yeah. Oh, that's a big one for a lot of people. Yeah. And she's, you know, she's got her therapist there with her and her therapist is like, let's just go one more block than we went yesterday. And even going that like one more block, you know, they're shaking. You're going into the unknown of that one block. That's not the safety that you had yesterday. There's also, and I think in the first couple seasons of the show, Shameless, uh, What's her name? I love her so much. Emmy Rossum's character? No, no. the Joan Cusack. Joan oh, Cusack yeah. okay. plays a character with agoraphobia in the first few seasons. And um, she's like the mother of like a daughter of one of the characters. And I actually thought that that was also, while, you know, comedic and dramatized and things like that, was a really good, um, I guess, like way of putting it more into the public consciousness to show this character that really wanted to be there for her kid, but at the same time, couldn't leave the house to even go to a parent teacher conference and things like that for years and years and years. And I think that it is important to talk about because those very specific phobias and things like that aren't as like broadly discussed and they're very secretive and things like that. Right. And you're not choosing to not go to your son's PTA, you know, function, right? Like it it makes you feel like a bad mom. Probably, It is actually something serious that's going on with you medically. Exactly. Um, So outside of those treatments, there's also, as we've already said, antidepressants and anti-anxiety medication are also very common forms of treatment for anxiety disorders. And I think that there's a lot of misconceptions about why people take medication, lengths of time for medication and things like that. And I always just try to remind people, especially when they feel some sort of trepidation about wanting to go on medication. It's just like being on meds for if you were to have some sort of physical ailment that you need help for. The medication is there because your brain does not either give enough or take enough of whatever from their whatever neuro inhibitors, blah, 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 blah. There is something in your brain that can help you (laughs) you know, live your life more normally. And it is a very physical, biological thing. It isn't just in your head. Right. You have a chemical imbalance. Yes. Which is why, you know, I want to make it very clear, even though I have hesitancies, probably honestly linked to my anxiety about things like going to the doctor or being on medication. And when you're not doing well, I think you're less likely to notice it in yourself to be able to get that kind of help too. So even though I have my own weird hangups about that stuff, I know people for whom medication has absolutely saved their life. I would not do anything. (laughs) Right. If you need it, please, please go see a professional, um, figure out what works for you. But there's a lot of people that choose not to. I went to treatment with a woman who uh, just was very against taking medications of any kind. She's actually part of a study about people who are in recovery with eating disorders without using medication. Mm -hmm. Um, So there is a lot of, um, you know, advancements in psychology that's being made where people can choose different treatment options for themselves for what makes them feel more comfortable or what works best for them. Yeah. Um, But I am a big proponent in, you know, at least taking, getting the stigma taken away from all of that and where if it is something that you need, even for a short period of time to help your life get back on track, there's no shame in that. Yeah. Agreed. 
Uh, Should we talk a little bit about the history of anxiety? Yes, let's do it. Okay, I find all this stuff super fascinating. And we just very recently talked about ancient Egypt and all of that. Mm -hmm. I'm kind of going to bring us back to a little bit of that time with talking about some ancient philosophers, only I'm going to be talking more about ancient Greek stuff. So according to Hippocrates' Greek medical text, the phobia of a man named Nicanor is described. Nicanor's affection when he went drinking at a party was fear of the flute girl. Whenever he heard the voice of the flute begin to play at a symposium, masses of terror rose up. He said that he could hardly bear it when it was night, but if he heard it in the daytime, he was not affected. Such symptoms persisted for a long period of time. In this case, in that text, a typical phobia is labeled as a medical disorder. So this is kind of the first time that we're seeing a story of someone's Mm -hmm. symptoms of a phobia and having a medical text to validate that as being some sort of medical ailment to be helped. In another medical text, Latin Stoic philosophical writings of Cicero and Seneca wrote that affliction, worry, and anxiety are called disorders on account of the analogy between a troubled mind and a diseased body. And this is kind of where a lot of psychologists and psychiatrists have taken a lot of their uh, treatment ideas from, was from a lot of like philosophers during this period. Seneca, who lived between 4 BC and 65 AD, taught his contemporaries how to achieve freedom from anxiety in his book, Peace of Mind. According to Seneca, fear of death is the main cognition preventing us from enjoying a carefree life, (laughs) right? Well, yeah. (laughs) He says, he who fears death will never act as becomes a living man, which is a rough translation, but it's basically the one who fears death will never truly live, right? Yeah, yeah. Existential philosophers Kierkegaard and Heidegger mm-hmm. claim that to escape the clutches of anxiety is to devote your attention instead to the present instead of worrying about the future. Right. And I would say that that's actually like a very common that mindfulness is, yes. is uh, something that is very commonly used to treat anxiety exactly. and depression. Actually, it's learning to be present mm-hmm. to not, you know, worry about the things that you've done in the past and to not worry about the things that haven't even happened yet, but to find that right. present moment yes. to find, you know, your and a happiness lot of Eastern and now. philosophers also subscribe to that belief as well. Yeah. Certainly. Yeah. Unfortunately, this kind of forward thinking did not continue on between classical antiquity and modern psychiatry. There were centuries where the concept of anxiety as an illness disappears from written records. In this time, many anxious patients would be diagnosed with melancholia, which seems to me like a diagnostic combination of depression and anxiety. Yeah. Again, kind of a very umbrella term. And again, something that was very much disproportionately diagnosed to women. women. Yeah. Yeah. She's really sad. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. She's got the blues. Yeah. Melancholia. Exactly. A key criteria in diagnosing melancholia was if the patient would remain quiet as an agitated person would be diagnosed with mania. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So not the greatest of like diagnostic testing at this time. In the 18th century, medical authors published clinical descriptions of panic attacks, but it wasn't labeled as a separate illness. There was also a diagnosis called vapors, which I remember. (laughs) She's got the vapors. She's got the vapors, which is weird. But I remember like, I think I've read this in books and stuff. We will use this term and I've never looked it up to see what they're meaning by this. Um, But that was a term for a nervous disorder, which was most common between 1665 and 1750. So it's all just kind of different names and variations of 
similar things, but just kind of trying to figure out what the fuck this thing is. And that's it sounds going like on. they lump a lot of different disorders in together, Instead right? Instead like, of oh, trying to differentiate what's going on and mm-hmm. finding those specific um, diagnoses to be able to treat someone, they're kind of throwing everybody in at once and hoping that maybe probably one treatment will help all of them as well. Yeah. You know? When the DSM became a thing, the DSM-1 described anxiety as ebbing synonymous with psychoneurotic disorders, with the key characteristic of that diagnosis being anxiety. Thanks. <laughs> okay. <laughs> in the DSM-2, it was called neuroses. And it wasn't until the DSM-3 in 1980 where the chapter of anxiety disorders included phobia disorders subdivided into agoraphobia, social phobia, and simple phobia. Yeah, because that's that's interesting because for it to be called neuroses, like I am an anxious person, but I You're don't not consider neurotic. myself to be neurotic. Like I'm not a neurotic person. But can you? But can you see maybe? yourself in the time when you're at the height of your panic or maybe people will call you neurotic (laughs) maybe I I don't know like I'm just trying to think of like I feel like that's they're calling it as they're seeing it kind of right I mean I think my my anxiety manifests more as agitation than it does as like neuroses like I don't become neurotic I become like highly agitated (laughs) about like everything yeah 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 I might be short with people. You know, I just feel maybe like they would maybe they then they would like put you in more of like a an unruly woman. Like you yeah. have like a temper or right. something. You yeah, know what I mean? Exactly. It's just it's interesting because for them they're trying so hard to fit anxiety into this box when it manifests so differently on each person because we are biologically very different and there are different ways that we respond to different traumas in our lives as well right very different you know so like it's just that to me is so interesting it is and this was the first time too where there was a subdivision for panic disorders generalized anxiety disorder obsessive compulsive disorder and post-traumatic stress disorder for children it included separation anxiety avoidant disorder of childhood or adolescence and over anxious disorder It was also finally in 1980 when anxiety neuroses was split into two new categories, panic disorder and generalized anxiety disorder. This was because they noticed that medical treatments for depression blocked recurrent panic attacks, but had no effects on phobic anxiety not associated with panic attacks. Right. Yeah. So they were like, well, not everybody is the same. If this person is experiencing anxiety, but isn't getting these panic attacks, this way that we're treating them isn't helpful. Yeah. I mean, because I have... Anxiety. I probably have a couple anxious days a week where sometimes I can wake up and I know like I am going to have an anxious day today. Like physically, I feel different. Right. You know, but I only have panic attacks maybe a handful of times a year. Right. So... That Typically, that would be me. I, I, the past couple years with the pandemic, it's yeah. been way more yeah. frequent for me. But I've that also medication would do nothing for me, really, right, because exactly. it's just like you're not you're not managing my weekly anxiety symptoms you're just managing my panic attacks right. which is not always my problem mm-hmm. right exactly it's not it's helping the the symptom not the cause right mm-hmm. and now we have the dsm-5 which is you know much more you know broad and specific at the same time and talking about anxiety disorders and we are becoming so much more knowledgeable about everything but it really is so startling for me to think about the fact that it wasn't until 1980 just 12 years before I was born that all of these things were finally coming back into our consciousness as being a true 
medical disorder like it was back in the 1600s and BC and all of those Mm -hmm. things where there was such a long gap where it just wasn't being validated. Yeah. I mean, and for that reason, I think that the statistics that we have around the number of people who are experiencing anxiety disorders is low. And even with that, it's still fairly common. And I also think that what's really hard about surveying for like psychological disorders is that it takes people being going in to get help Mm -hmm. and being willing to give their answers because what we were kind of discussing briefly before recording was that one thing that I noticed was that white women were of the highest percentage of people in America to be diagnosed Mm -hmm. with an anxiety disorder. And America and Europe or the United States, North America and Europe uh, are in like have the highest numbers of anxiety disorders. Western countries have the highest numbers. And they said that like East Asia has the lowest numbers. Right. Which is probably not true. It's just that the way that we look at anxiety disorders and treatment. Well, um, and I think that the people willing to come forward to discuss it. And the ways that we treat different minority groups too. And that was something that was super obvious to me because I'm like, I've, I was diagnosed very young as a white woman with my anxiety disorder and felt very validated in that. But I know that there are a lot of cultures, a lot of families, a lot of different types of people who are not brought to the doctor when needed to get those testing or wouldn't think of doing that themselves or or don't think there's anything wrong with them and don't, I don't know. Exactly. Like for sure, my, okay, both of my black grandmas, so my stepdad's mom and my dad's mom, my dad's mom definitely had anxiety. I've talked about it on this podcast before. Uh, I think in the Emmett Till episode most recently, she kept bars on the windows. Yes, of she her was house. incredibly. Like, I don't want to say paranoid because that sounds but negative, anxious, but like yeah. and for good reason, right? right? Like there were a lot of societal factors that led her to be that way. But I would say if she were to go in and and tell her fears to a psychologist, they would probably diagnose her with some form of anxiety. Or do you think they would have misdiagnosed her because she was a black woman? Well, they may have. Because I I think that's the other thing. Like, I'm wondering But she never would have gone in in the first place, is my point. But I wonder if there's more of a... Like, the same kind of thing with heart disease, where, like, men are more likely to be diagnosed with heart disease than women because men are taken more seriously when they tell the doctors their symptoms of heart disease or women are typically not taken as seriously when they're discussing their symptoms. So I wonder if there's also all of these other minority groups being misdiagnosed and not being cared for properly because they're part of minority groups. Right. I mean, my my stepdad's mom, I would say not to armchair diagnose her, but my dad also agrees. She probably was manic depressive or had some kind of behavioral condition. Right. um, Because it was very clear to me, even at a young age, that she had bouts of very serious mania and then bouts of of pretty serious depression where she wouldn't get out of bed. And that's a pretty obvious thing to notice. Yeah. Yeah. And she wouldn't get diagnosed either. So I think that there is there are also like cultural differences. So I think white women definitely like melancholia, the vapors, anxiety, depression. Well, I feel like we were more encouraged to get the help. They feel, they feel like white women problems to be honest. Like, and I'm not saying that in a, in a rude way. I have anxiety. No, not at all. But it's just, I feel like so many minority groups or, um, immigrant groups in the United States, like they are like, we have have so many other things to worry about. We're not gonna like, we're so you're sad like whatever you still have to fucking like get up and go to work because right. you have to feed your and family I feel or whatever like you know? there's also when you talk about when people come from other places or 
have different like ancestral experiences. Like everybody is coming into the world in a different place. And I feel like that's also why it's so hard, especially with something as broad as anxiety, where you have so many different categories to be fit into, where it can be really easy to feel like even in the world of mental illness and mental health, maybe there isn't a place for you too. Yeah. Yeah. Because maybe it feels like white people problems and things like that. Yeah, definitely. But something like 7% of the world's population as of 2016 were diagnosed with an anxiety disorder, which is a lot of people. Right. And diagnoses are on the rise. As of 2012, Reuters reported that anxiety disorders were up 12,000% 12,000% since 1980. Which, gee, I wonder why. Yeah. Because what year did it become a fucking diagnosis? Yeah. 1980. Mm-hmm. There you go. Uh, so what causes an anxiety disorder to form in an individual? Oh, so many things. Yes. There's a lot of speculation about this, and it seems to be generally accepted that it is, of course, a combination of things. And those things might include issues with the nervous system, past trauma imprinted on the brain, genetics, cultural forces, and technological forces. And this might be why what we are seeing now is that millennials and Gen Z experience much higher rates of anxiety and depression than previous generations. That could be because they were less likely to go to therapy. But it is also largely in part because of the, the constant inundation of, of social media and, and information and knowing what's going on in the world and having more to worry about and things like that. Yes. But you Millennials brought something have the highest. Yeah. Depression and anxiety rates. I looked into it because I was like, why is every does everyone Everybody. I know have an anxiety disorder? Everybody. It's not special anymore, you guys. But you did actually bring up something that I don't want to forget to talk about because I think that there is such an important tie between anxiety and women when it comes to emotional trauma. Yes. Especially because women are at such a higher rate to experience some form of trauma or abuse in their life. Yes. As a whole, we as humans, I read somewhere, like half of us will experience some sort of life-altering traumatic event in our lives. Yes. Most of us will kind of grow through that trauma and kind of get through it where there's also a population of people where that doesn't happen and that very much imprints on your mind and the trauma that we experience through our lives has a lasting effect on how we will go on to live. So if you are a woman, you are more likely to have experienced sexual trauma, Mm -hmm. domestic abuse, so many of these things where the likelihood for you having an anxiety disorder has now skyrocketed, even if you don't have any sort of genetic predisposition or had any struggles with anxiety before now suddenly you have that problem. Yeah. And I think that that may be why, and this is just pure speculation on my part, but the average age of onset for anxiety disorders is 31 years old. Uh, And I do think that maybe that's part of it. Like you've lived a lot of life and those play into your anxieties as you get older. And I think we start to understand more about ourselves and our past as we've gotten older. And I think especially in trying to just, help myself through a lot of the own prop my own problems that I have looking back at my childhood and how I responded to things I think is really important and I think when we get to you know the age we're in now you know being like 30 32 years old we have that like hindsight to look back on all of those Mm -hmm. things and it's still gonna affect us today because we've never dealt with all that shit back then right yeah absolutely I completely agree so by the time you're 31 you're finally like fucking help (laughs) you know Oh, no, I'm drowning. Yeah. Yeah. Or it's just the the dog meme. This is like literally how I felt for like the last month. The dog with the coffee uh-huh. cup and, and everything's on fire. fire. And he's like, I'm fine. I feel that way. I feel that way all the time. I all literally the time. that 
meme i think about it almost every day almost every day me too i have actually thought about getting this is fine tattooed on my body can we please do that somewhere i'll get it on my other butt cheek i would love to do that because i'm just like i i do i i I literally say that out loud where i'm just like this is fine this is fine like what like i'll i'm also such a fucking clumsy person that like i'll always just do one more thing that will just like set me over the edge. And so like, this is fine. Oh my I just God. like totally. Oh God. Like one night I didn't fully cook the chicken for dinner. I was oh like, what God. is wrong with me? Listen, I have to say. <laughs> no, it was pasta, not chicken. Thank God. That's God. how I know. Like I'm not doing well mentally is like one, one thing can go wrong. Like you're doing fine. And then like you like drop something on the floor and now you want to end it all. You like, know what I- that's a sign? You need to start checking in with yourself more because then I'm like, whoa, have I like asked myself how I'm doing in no. a minute? No, I haven't. Suppressing, suppressing, suppressing. And not even noticing and it. Now all of a sudden you are like, oh, like I'm I'm in tears because yeah. I dropped my piece of toast jam side down. Like, you know, like I mean, that's, that's pretty it. tragic. Right? Like it is just wild but okay now that we have an understanding about what anxiety is and why people might experience it let's take another quick break and when we come back let's talk about why people think women might experience it so much more than men let's do it and we're back so Researchers have been trying to figure out why there is such a large gender gap when it comes to anxiety between men and women. Like we mentioned earlier, women are twice as likely to experience anxiety as men. And in fact, stress-related diseases are more common in women across the board. So why is this? Because men don't give a fuck. I'm just kidding. I'm sorry. I had to literally like fight that with every VA. To be honest, to be honest, like that is part of it. One... Men, uh, you know, in societally, historically, historically, men have been doctors and they have not taken women's issues seriously. So that's part of it. Two, men are less likely to go to therapy. So while in recent years, the number of men seeking therapy and being open about going to therapy have increased, they are still considerably less likely than women. I still have yet to convince any man I've been with to go to therapy. Help. Oh, I mean... (laughs) Max God, knows he needs it. He just doesn't want to pay for it. God so like, bless that's it. At least. Anthony has gone to therapy on and off for our whole relationship. Oh my so God. That's been good. I mean, let's he's make not, therapy more affordable so that like literally everyone can go to therapy. That's the main thing. That's the reason why I'm not in therapy right now. So, for real. Yeah. Because it's expensive. Um, in 2016, men made up just 37% of therapy patients. They're also less likely to see a medical doctor on average than women, so unless it's me, I guess, so are less likely to receive a diagnosis, period. Like, yeah. And also... I think that's like, it's very much of that like machismo culture yes. to, you know, fight yeah. through the pain. If you're sad, get over it. And something we're going to be talking about in a upcoming episode, male flight, right? Yeah. So like this has been largely seen as a women's problem. Mm -hmm. And as we talked about in our toxic masculinity episode, anything, if women are seen as inferior beings, anything that is predominantly a women's in quotes issue. Yeah. If women's like it or if women are part of it, it is inherently lesser than. Right. So you're like, I'm, I don't have anxiety. That's a that's a woman thing. Or yeah. I'm not going to go to therapy. That's a weakness. Yes, right. exactly. So there's a lot of talk and speculation about 
what outside or societal factors could contribute to women having a higher degree of anxiety. So when looking at the nature versus nurture argument, a study was done on children, and it would appear that up until the age of 11, boys and girls experience anxiety at roughly the same rate. By 15, girls are six times more likely to have an anxiety disorder than boys. Of course, to me, that seems like it has something to do with puberty. Right. So I think it's I think it's twofold because I think that well I know that it does in part have to do with puberty and I'll talk a little bit more about hormones in a minute, but I also think that there is a shift in the way we treat girls between those ages, right? Like they're no longer them, young and innocent now right. they're teenage girls. Right. Yeah. That are we emotional and we've said it on this on this podcast before but like I received probably the majority of the sexual harassment in my life uh as a young teen as a teen right so I think that those are that constant attention negative sexual attention is a trauma that can imprint on your brain and cause you to be anxious and it is interesting too just how like relationships between boys and girls change during that time too where I'm sure that that has some indicators in you know how some women and young girls would respond to the world you know I think that is it's acceptable for young boys and girls to be friends. And then once you hit a certain age and all of those things happen, I think there's also this thing that a lot of women go through and I hope they don't go through this still today. Like I did where you start to realize that maybe like your friends in the world aren't as safe as you once thought it was. And you're being told that Mm -hmm. these friendships and other parts of your life have to change now that you're older. I feel like there's so many like fucked up things that happen to you during puberty where like you don't really understand what's being thrown at you and you're expected to suddenly behave very differently and be very different. Yeah. Along with all of the hormonal effects happening. Yeah. Yeah. So what is it? Are women just wired this way to be more anxious by nature? And maybe, yes. I mean, I think the fact that women have historically been the caretakers and more of those types of roles, I feel like that gives them more uh, opportunity for emotion and anxiety and things like that because we expect empathy from that type of person and I think that when you have empathy and emotion you're also exuding more of your anxieties your depression when you're feeling that yeah so I I wasn't able to find anything to back this up but I would say uh just from like anecdotal personal experience of myself and then also observing the women in my life like my my mom my aunts and my grandmother you know I would say that Managing a home, which is something that we have been conditioned societally to do right. uh, for generations, right? And that kind of like thing seeps in to us. Right. Uh, I think that that can generate a lot of anxiety because you are hyper aware all the time of everybody's issues and needs. So right. my mom, hyper aware of like, I've got to get, you know, I got to get Christian to horseback riding go lessons. To ho- I got to get Keegan's, Keegan's got to go to cheer practice. And I got to, yeah. right. And then I have to make sure that I've got the chicken out of the freezer for dinner and I've got to And do I this. have to make dentist appointments and I have to make sure that Keegan turned in her homework on time. Right. And I also have to make sure, you know, there's always and so many things. And when you're hyper aware like that, I think it can cause you to be anxious because you're, you're thinking about. You remember about, so many freaking things when I think historically men were like, go and make the money and come home. Right. And that's 
what you need yeah. to worry about. And I'll have my scotch as soon as I walk in the door and I nobody talk to me while I'm watching my shows. And yeah, then, my stress is at work. Uh-huh. And yeah. then when I come home, I turn all that off. Yes, you're Where able to be did more... not have that mm-hmm. luxury. You know, mm-hmm. their, their work was their home. And again, I wasn't able to find anything that would back that up as a reason, but it well, makes sense to me. Well, because there is just such a lack of information. Yeah. I mean, again, talking to my mom because... Both sides of my family have greatly struggled with both anxiety and depression on my dad's side. And we're not going to have time to talk about all of this, about how substance abuse is so prominent in um, people with anxiety, especially to self-medicate mm-hmm. and why, you know, and subs- depression and yeah. depression and why mm-hmm. that's such a, a large issue. But then on my mom's side, I've discussed, you know, earlier in this episode and in past episodes about how my grandma had like a breakdown and mm-hmm. like just went away for a while and then was like never the same again. And my mom this morning was discussing with me that she believes that it was around her mom's change, as she calls mm-hmm. it, or menopause when she had that breakdown. And my mom remembers that after she had already gone through all of her agoraphobia stuff, it was around the time she remembers that I was in grade school and skating. So it must have been like just before I started with my panic attacks, she started to feel her anxiety come back. And it was around the time that she started her menopause as well. So she was kind of like making those connections in her own head between her mother and herself when she was going through that time and kind Mm -hmm. of seeing that same pattern. Yeah. So, okay. So women's brains may be more sensitive to certain stress hormones. In a study that was done on the brains of rats, it was found that female rats' brains were more sensitive to the hormone that triggers hypervigilance, uh, which is very, it's a very useful hormone when you need it, like when you're being chased, um, (laughs) you know, or you need to be hyper aware for some reason. It's just funny because it's like, is that now what we fear all the fucking time is being chased yes. or fucking followed? Yes, all the time. Jesus. Uh, but it's not so great when you just have to like go to a networking event, right? You don't need that like hyper vigilance yeah. to be going off constantly. Or do you? I mean, you? maybe a little, a little bit, probably. Yeah. Um, <laughs> not alert. only, not Stay only alive. were the female rats, and we can assume also people because we use rats' brains to study people's I know, brains. I'm like, how fucking rude. I know. I know. I'm smarter than a rat. <laughs> also. Rats are very smart, and that's very mean to the rats to be using them this way. But it is I guess mean to the rats. we need it for science. Uh, but not only were the female rats' brains more sensitive to this hormone, they were also less equipped to handle the stress of the hormone when it was released. Thus, what were they the were, rats doing? I don't know. Probably something. They were probably doing really messed up things. I want to know. Were they like just hiding in their little huts? They were crying probably hurting these rats but let's let's not go down that path i can't stop thinking about it were they hanging from the rafters Uh, so thus persistent anxiety i.e an anxiety disorder so i feel like a lot of men particularly but also women because like like you said there's not a ton of information on this topic would assume that estrogen is to blame for well everything every woman's issue um but as it turns out Estrogen actually correlates to higher fear extinction capacity, which is why at the start of your period, when your estrogen levels are low and your progesterone levels are high, you may experience higher levels of anxiety. Right. So this, I thought, was fascinating. And this kind of goes to what you're talking about in times of like the change or any, any, the change. Right? I know. It just made me laugh Menopause. so hard. I'm like, okay, mom, what year is it? <laughs> I'm pre- oh, your mom was my like, mom was just- like when my mom went through the change and I was yeah. like, OK, <laughs> yeah. uh, but 
high doses of progesterone can actually change the shape of the brain, specifically in the area that manages anxiety. And when you're going through menopause, your levels of progesterone are raising a lot and your, and your estero- levels of estrogen, yeah, your are, estrogen de- are decreasing is decreasing right. right so this is also why when women are on birth control for long periods so there's not been a lot of information we don't have a lot of information about the long-term effects of birth control because, because we're still in the middle of it right we weren't widely on birth control until 50 years ago right so there is not a lot of information about what happens when people get on birth control at 13 and stay on it up until they're 40, you know? Um, But this is also why when women are on birth control for long periods, they are more likely to experience chronic anxiety because they're taking in more progesterone. progesterone. I mean, depending on what birth control you're taking, Mm -hmm. but most of the time the hormone that would be added is like progesterone. Yes. Yeah. Whenever I, um, take birth control which I'm not on birth control right now but whenever I did it was progesterone birth control yeah um, I took it I took it as well for a little bit and it was so bad for my depression it was so bad I took it I think for maybe a week and I was like I wonder if it's the pills that are doing this and yeah. I stopped her a few days and I was fine I was like I can't yeah other than non-hormonal birth control it's the only birth control I can take because right. all other birth control gives me aura migraines yeah <laughs> that can lead to strokes so I can't Let's take keep those. Keegan alive. Right. Uh, so it's also why you might experience post and prepartum anxiety because right. your brain has been flooded with progesterone during those times. Right. Or that's what some researchers are saying. So and it it's would so make sense. shitty that like even all of that where there's so much medical basis and why we have these issues, you know, after birth, before birth, during uh-huh. menopause, during puberty. Women are so shamed for going through it. It's so shitty. Like women are so shamed for having post-traumatic stress yeah, disorder. It's like, dude, I have to deal with this. Like it's, I have unbelievable shit happening with the levels of hormones in my body. Right. Physically can't control it. Yes. And it's so like hurtful to me to think that there are so many people out there that just blame themselves or let their partners blame them or anything or let society blame them for feeling horribly during times where they feel like they should be happy. Right. That makes me sad. Yeah. So what about the nurture argument? So there are some researchers who believe that women experiencing higher rates of anxiety has less to do with hormones and more to do with perception. We perceive women to be more emotional and emotionally fragile. And so we equate anxious qualities with women. Right. Which is why maybe men wouldn't be diagnosed with anxiety right. as much because it is more obvious to us when a woman is exhibiting anxious behaviors. Right. And if their anxiety manifests as anger, they might be... They uh, have an anger problem. Right. Yeah. They, they, would <laughs> they just be have a temper. with something else, you right. know, or nothing at all. Um it's the same reason women tend not to be believed when it comes to physical pain. Yep. As we said, we're perceived as nervous and anxious and over-exaggerating. And if we just calm down, everything would be fine. Right. There have been studies that suggest that women tend to be labeled as anxious even when we aren't. One, in fact, found that when men and women are showing the same levels of any given emotion... Women are seen and even believe themselves to be more emotional. Oh, which yeah. I think is like that internal anxiety too, where I'm all, I'm too much. I'm so aware of how I'm being perceived, uh, or concerned about right. how I'm being perceived that I will perceive myself to be far more irrational or emotional than I am actually being. Well, because we also have that 
extreme like self-awareness when we're feeling anxious as well where it does seem like everything we're doing is wrong yeah (laughs) you know that's all part of your anxiety telling you these really negative things about yourself that's keeping you from living a full life you know yeah yeah I mean it's a bitch (laughs) it it really is and it leads to more anxiety well and yeah and that's the thing why it is so important to get help and it is so important to recognize your own ways that you react to your anxiety I know for myself when I was going through a really rough time a couple days ago I have an amazing friend at work named Fiona and she FaceTimed me and she was just like do you need to be alone and cry or do you want me to pick you up and Mm -hmm. go get you something to eat and I was like I think I need something to eat like she can pick me up we were out for an hour because I know for myself staying isolated is although that's all I want I feel like I'm not worth being seen in the world like everything is horrible I know that I have to push through that yeah and at least do something to fight against that anxiety to prove to myself that while it isn't as simple as being all in my head, it is in my head and I do have control. I, I right. have power over my own anxiety. And I think that it's easy for me a lot of times to forget that that I have that because it can feel so debilitating. Right. But it is so important to remember to be easy on yourself in those moments where you aren't able to kind of push through and try harder, but to remember that you, you trying every day, and I'm trying to figure out the best way to say this, but you trying every day to try to fight against your anxiety is also what's going to help you. Yes. You know, yes. you can't just let it be that way and say, this is just how I am. I think it's really important not just to acknowledge the fact that we have struggles, but to find appropriate ways to live our lives and get through them. Yeah. You can't help the fact that you have anxiety or you're feeling very anxious or you're having a panic attack. Those are not things that you can help or you should blame yourself for. But at the same time, there are steps that you can take because at least for me, not always. Sometimes I'm feeling completely unhinged and unwrapped. Well, and, and that's the thing. And like but, in, in those moments, maybe that's not going to work for right. you. You know. But there are also moments, like we said before, where I can rationally understand that my anxiety is lying to me in this yeah. moment. And I think even acknowledging that in your head mentally, that like this isn't real. Your anxiety is lying to you. You're still going to feel that anxiety. You're still going to be in that situation, but you're going to be able to soothe yourself enough. Yes. To get through the day. And the last time I had a really bad, like not just an anxiety day, but like a depressive panic attack, really, you know, the next day I had plans and I, all I wanted to do was cancel those plans. Right. Like I was just like, I don't want to be anywhere. I don't want to see anyone. I'm like in such a bad place. Yeah. I'm in such a bad place mentally that I didn't want to do anything, but I did tell myself like, you don't want to go, but you need to go. You need to go. You need to go. Even if you only stay for a little while, um, it's going to be better for you mentally than right. And then what if you go and you start to feel better? And I did did start to feel better. A lot of times it's that getting around other people that kind of proves to yourself too that like better days are ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Too. You know, staying alone in your own thoughts is never, in my opinion, the best way to get out of your own head. It just kind of tends to create a lot more of a downward spiral. I mean, so there might be days when you need a rest day. You're like, I want to be alone. I want to take a bubble bath. I want to read a book. I just want to like, I don't want to interact with anyone. But I need to good, recharge. It's good like, to that's know okay. what you need right. in those moments. And it's also good, and this is kind of the last thing I'll say on this, but like, it's also good to start to recognize things that will trigger you. Yes. Uh, because those things can change the older that you get. Like there's, 
something that I've been experiencing and that, you know, in speaking with friends, something that tends to happen again over the age of 30 is hangxiety. Hangxiety? Hangxiety. So like that is hanging out with people? No, that is anxiety that's triggered by drinking. Oh, so yeah. If you find, I've noticed that in myself and it was never something that I experienced before, but it is something that a lot of people I know as they get older start to experience a lot more. And if you recognize things like that, it's not, I mean, I'm going to go to a networking party and have a drink tonight, you know, or whatever. But it's good to know. But it's good to have an understanding of those things. So, so you at can least have you more can control be over aware it too. Yeah. of it. And it might not be drinking. It might be, you know, certain events or people or right. situations. Well, kind of on the flip side of that for me, having an alcoholic father when I was in high school, I really struggled with being at parties around drunk people. And I still do sometimes. Like yeah. I get very uncomfortable, especially if I'm not on that same level where I don't feel safe around a group of people who are intoxicated. And especially when I was very young in high school and around like teenagers that were drunk, I was always like, alert, alert, get me home. And that was something that was very clear to me that I needed to stay clear headed in those, you know, instances. I couldn't be drinking and things like that. Or I just wouldn't go to those parties because I knew that I was going to have a negative reaction to that. And instead of forcing myself to like be cool and do all this stuff, it's like, no, I have to take care of myself and it's fine that I'm not comfortable with that. Obviously, as an adult now, I go to parties all the time. It's not mm-hmm. a big deal. Yeah. But I also have, I do still have that like thing with drinking where my body just doesn't really handle it well and I get anxious when I'm drunk and I hate it. Like yeah. I just want, yeah. I want it to be gone. I don't want to be drunk anymore. I, I enjoy drinking and I drink regularly. It's that at least now I know, you know, yeah. I know that if I'm feeling anxious the next day, maybe this is part of my hangover and not it that everyone is. in your life hates you. Well, you know, and like, let's just remember that alcohol is a depressant too. Yes. So if you are like literally giving yourself depressants all night, you're going to probably feel a little shitty the next day. You might have said something you didn't want to say. You might have, you know, stood on a table and done a or silly dance. Or even if you didn't, or, you might feel like you did. Exactly. Like I, that, that's where I get where I'm just like, I don't even remember doing anything bad last night, but like, what if I did? Or what if I looked stupid? Is and someone probably, mad at me? Yes, That's is, mine. <laughs> is someone mad at me? That me too. And probably no is the answer. Like nobody's mad at you. Like you're fine. Yeah. But like sometimes there are just things that can trigger those thoughts in, in you yeah. and those feelings. So just kind of look at the moments when you feel anxious. And I know a lot of people who even keep a journal and keep track of their moods, like a mood yeah, diary. Yeah. So that they can look at, okay, you know, the last five times I did this thing, I felt anxious. I just downloaded an app and I haven't used it yet, but it is like a CBT journal app where you can track your moods, track your responses to things. And it came up in an Instagram ad for mm-hmm. me. And I'm like, I'm totally going to try that because I think it would be really great to learn. I, I'm always about more self-exploration yeah. exploration and learning about myself. Yeah. So if that's going to help me you know, especially manage my life when it just keeps getting busier and busier. Yep. Yep. (laughs) That'd be great. Um, And I just want to say that whether or not you're listening to this and you are experiencing anxiety or if you're questioning if you have an anxiety disorder or if what you're feeling is valid, I would say to anybody that has any questions about their own mental health is to reach out to somebody that you trust and to speak with them about it to also 
go online and see if there are any resources for you in the area to get a psychological exam. I think that it's so important for everybody where if they feel like they just want to know what's going on with them, get a psych evaluation. Yeah. And there learn are more about places, yourself. There are lots of places where you can do it or they'll do it on a sliding scale financially. Exactly. Uh, so if you feel like that's something that's out of reach for you financially, there are places and resources that will help you. They're hard to find. But that's why I say find somebody in your life that you feel that you trust that won't be judgmental that you can speak to because I know it's not always easy coming forward Mm -hmm. with things like this. It can be very shameful and embarrassing for people, but it, it shouldn't be. Find somebody that you trust that can support you. I think if you're younger, if it's not, you know, your parent, maybe a friend's parent that would have information that could help you. Um, There are so many resources out there. You're definitely not alone. You're not crazy. There's nothing wrong with you. Right. Um, You have every right to be feeling the way that you're feeling and to let it be known to others because that's the only thing that's going to keep you safe. This isn't something that should just be pushed under the rug or slapped a Band-Aid on Mm -hmm. or anything. It is very, very, very important to your health and safety. Absolutely. I I wouldn't want anybody who is struggling in even the smallest shape or form right now not get the help that they need and have something horrible happen years down the line. Everybody stay safe. Please love yourselves as much as you can and get help if you need it. All right. I think that's all we've got for you today. Uh, If you would like to suggest any future topics for the show, you can go ahead and email us at neighborhoodfeminist at gmail.com or direct message us on Instagram at Angry Neighborhood Feminist. If you haven't checked out our adorable merch yet, you can go to our link in the bio on our Instagram page or the link in your show notes wherever you're listening. We have a Facebook business and group page. You can rate and review us on the business page and chat with the other listeners on the group page. And last but certainly not least, if you haven't done so already, we would greatly appreciate it if you would leave us a positive five-star review on Apple Podcasts with a quick sentence about why you enjoy the show. I think I just said sentence, but I'm not re-saying it. <laughs> with all of that being said, said we encourage you to rage, to rage on. on wow bye. i almost missed saying that well i didn't say the first part <laughs> oh, okay bye everyone bye contained herein are the heresies of radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk turned traveling medical investigator join me as i uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world that ours is not a loving god And we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwein, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available.